0: Okay, I can. I, yes, can you hear me? Okay, I'm in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Recording in progress.
1: Sorry about that. I'd like to call to order the Planning Commission meeting for Thursday, October 5th. Ms. Hoxma, roll call.
0: Commissioner Brinson? Present. Commissioner Callahan? Here. Commissioner Gluska? Present. Commissioner Lin? Here. Vice Chair Wamashonje? Present. Thank you. Commissioner Mosier and Chair Sager are absent with the with um,
1: notice. Thank you. Our second item, our third item on the agenda is the approval of the agenda. plus yes. Approval of the minutes from uh, September 21st, the draft meeting. Ms. Hoxman, do we have uh, anyone or general public comment registered?
0: I did have someone. Oops, I did have someone sign up, but they are not in attendance at the moment. So I asked maybe if later if they attend if we could have them in. But at this time, I have no one.
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, then we move to our next item, which uh, is the study items, uh, the 2024 comprehensive plan.
2: Thank you. Uh, Andrew and Elise and I are here to present. Um, we haven't been here in a while, so to uh, update you on uh, comprehensive plan work, specifically around updating the vision, um, the racial equity analysis, and the uh, phase two outreach and the next steps with uh, public engagement. Um, so we're going to go. Th- basically three parts, if that's okay. Um, I'll start with the vision and we have some discussion questions where we can stop and um, look at that. And then Elise will follow that up with the racial equity analysis and we'll have a discussion around that topic. And then um, Andrew will finish up with the um, phase two engagement. And then um, that should be it. Um, So looking uh, with, at the vision first. So when um, staff began looking at updating the vision um, that was drafted in 2012, that was went out um, to get feedback from the public. Um, so when asked about the vision established as, as part of the plan in 2012, 85% of those online um, open house participants agreed or somewhat agreed that the vision is still relevant. Um, And though there was a slight majority of respondents who felt that uh, more needed to be added to the current vision So several several themes reflecting respondents values priorities and concerns consistently appeared in the survey questions right in responses and the idea wall that we had on the online open house and those recurring themes generally uh, fell within the themes there on the screen of housing, safety, nature or the environment, and the structure or feel of the community. Um, So first we'll look at the first theme of housing. Um, Although several open house survey respondents indicated that they did not have any challenges with housing, the cost of housing and affordability were clearly primary concerns. Um, this came across in multiple responses about the ability to purchase or rent, especially for those in the middle or lower um, incomes, as well as the financial capacity to remain in, in home ownership um, in the future. Respondents expressed concerns around the ability to age in place and the risk of displacement um, if they wouldn't be able to continue to live in their current homes. Uh, SOME OTHER RECURRING THEMES AROUND HOUSING INCLUDED HOUSING DIVERSITY AND uh, MORE AVAILABILITY OF A SMALLER SCALE HOUSING OPTIONS, THOUGH THOSE RESPONDENTS ALSO PREFERRED um, A SINGLE FAMILY HOME, JUST SMALLER, AND THEN um, ALSO THE PROXIMITY TO AMENITIES AND SERVICES INCLUDING HOUSING LOCATED NEAR PARKS, uh, TRANSIT SHOPPING AND uh, SAFE AND uh, WALKABLE ACCESS through, THROUGH THOSE NEIGHBORHOODS. Um, the next topic of safety, um, so mentions of safety appeared across multiple questions. Uh, the term was used to characterize personal safety as well as uh, community safety. Um, respondents emphasized that the importance of an individual's uh, sense of uh, safety as it relates to like crime and blight in the city, as well as safety as it relates to mobility and accessibility um, while people are walking or bicycling through the city. Uh, Moving on to nature and the environment. Um, Respondents indicated they place a high value on green space, nature, tree canopy, and sustainability. This came across as concern for maintaining and protecting the city's existing green spaces and tree canopy, uh, valuing and being able to access or live near parks and natural areas and then also supporting the development of um, housing with sustainable features and renewable utilities um, lastly, on the topic of the field, there was a, a, there was a majority of online um, open house respondents who felt that more needed uh, to be added to the vision. Um, let's see. Um, Recurring themes about what should be added included like nature green space recreational opportunities for all ages um, Our vis- current vision is lacking in mentioning enough schools community programs and cultural activities And also the whole idea around neighborhood scale um, feel and walkability So taking all those comments we got from the online open house Um, There were three vision alternatives drafted uh, between staff and consultants and um, taking all that public input. Um, So ultimately the objective is to develop alternatives to share with the public as part of the phase two engagement and use the feedback to uh, further refine the vision for the updated comprehensive plan. So vision one, the alternative one is a slightly modified version of the existing vision statement um, created in uh, 2012. Vision alternatives uh, two and three reflect comments made in the last round of public engagement and include updated themes of inclusion, climate, connectivity, while also cutting way back on the amount of language. of the current vision and making it a true vision statement so I put the next slide so these are I'm not going to read these but these are in your staff report um, you can see vision one is quite lengthy um, it's you know small updates but the language in there is mostly good and, and can be reused throughout the update of the plan we're not saying all of that language should be cut but Um, maybe the city should focus on a more concise uh, vision alternative, which are in Alternatives 2 and 3. Next slide. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so um, staff really doesn't have a recommendation for the commission, um, but other than just to discuss... THE THREE ALTERNATIVES AND ON THE NEXT SLIDE, WE'VE PREPARED KIND OF SOME DISCUSSION QUESTIONS TO GET US STARTED WITH um, BASICALLY HOW THE COMMISSION FEELS ABOUT um, THESE ALTERNATIVES AND WE CAN JUST JUMP INTO BASICALLY QUESTION NUMBER ONE IS um, HOW DOES THE COMMISSION FEEL ABOUT A MORE ABBREVIATED VISION STATEMENT uh, THAT Based on what we have in the staff report, are these reflecting uh, the the um, topics and the and the uh, comments we received through the uh, online open house?
3: I would say I definitely agree with the abbreviated version of the vision statement. Um, I, in reading this, I was I was thinking about my my day job, and I said to myself, Do, "Could I tell you from memory the vision of the community I work for?" No, it's similarly pretty long, um, and it kind of has a number of kind of bulleted vision statements under it, and mm-hmm. so I like the idea of having something that you know you, you may not know word for word, you know as any, anybody working in the community, but you would kind of have the gist of it. It would be easy enough to remember and kind of our the existing vision statement is, is pretty long and, and pretty hard to parse. So uh, I, I definitely like the shorter, uh, more abbreviated vision statements. And I, I might even recommend instead of having kind of a long paragraph, maybe a bulleted list of here are our eight vision points mm-hmm. uh, with maybe a keyword bolded that's like, you know, community, you know, worth the word community into a sentence that kind of explains what it is. But then you could kind of say, okay, our or eight points or six points or whatever, however many it is. These, you know, those are things you could put on a wall and kind of remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that—that's just my mm-hmm. my two cents.
2: Yeah.
4: Um, I agree. Um, I like the concise, um, more concise statement, and I think that would help a lot with making it more memorable um, and. Um, I think uh, the way you guys have reworked it, it's got a lot of, I can see how you really listened to um, the community feedback. And I do think what Commissioner Galuska is suggesting with highlighting some, you know, having some words Mm -hmm. stand out and bullets would would really, um, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. just make it more Mm -hmm. accessible to people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the one thing for me that I was like um, maybe felt was missing was you know what differentiates Shoreline from other cities in the area, and that you know maybe sort of you know stretching it too far, but I that's typically what you would see in some vision statements about what makes this place mm. special. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, I thought it was yeah. it was really good what you guys did with it.
1: Commissioner
0: Lin? Uh, I also uh, agree upon the shorter, um, uh, more abbreviated uh, vision statement. Um, I uh, it, It's not so much on the memorable part for me, I just feel this vision will also, uh, it, it, it's easier to Yes, easier to emphasize like the bolded uh, uh, font, and um, I also have the feeling of the tendency of um, these uh, younger generation and readers. There they are uh, the type of the social norm. Um, it, it has the trend that I think should also reflect on our uh, the, the city document to To uh, uh, catch the attention and focus of um, our res- current and future residents. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. that's a that's a great point. Yeah.
5: I think I I appreciate the the shorter ones. I think you're getting that that gist. I do, the the longer text does have this sort of storytelling narrative to it, which I do appreciate. I mean, I was reading it, and I was like, oh, oh this is lovely. I live here, and this is great. <laughs> um, and there are a couple of people, and I think so. I'm thinking about these two. I, I'm sure you don't want us to be up here wordsmithing these two statements directly. I, In my head, I would like a combination of people in place, right? Mm-hmm. sort of a, a smash together of two and three, because it feels like, Want, they're both a little bit too far,
0: mm.
5: exclusively mm. people versus exclusively placed. And this document really is about both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, mm. bullet points. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I, so I know where my eyes should be pointed. <laughs> okay, I think
1: I agree with the comments that were put forward and I think you, you, you know what to do. Yes. I would just
6: ask, too, of the two, so I'm hearing more concise is better, so that'd be alternatives two and three. Um, are there, is there any leaning toward one or the other? So we've heard sort of a mashup of both, so maybe a number four is in the works. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we, at the staff level, were thinking if, you know, if that was the commission's direction, there's definitely, Utility to what's in alternative one to still be within the body of the document and sort of hits at that storytelling element Um, But is there any leaning toward uh, other than more concise kind of either Different themes or ideas or phrases or does anything resonate within two or three more than the other?
5: I think if you pull apart the sentences, it might be a little bit easier to compare. That's what, as I'm looking at it, it's two block, comparing two blocks of text. I'm like, is this word there? Is this word? that's a little bit difficult. Um, my gut reaction is three, though I did say mashup. Um, the one piece that I felt like I wasn't quite seeing there was a lot in the longer vision statement around sort of localized business and sort of that piece, and I didn't quite get that. I, I skipped a number something else but um Mm. and that was the one place where i felt like that that's a little bit more of the feel that we often hear about so
2: yeah i'm I'm kind of hearing about maybe reworking it into bolt like uh bullets with topics like that being one of them economic maybe if it's economic development then it kind of pulls um and the incubator stuff and the local businesses um, and then maybe using three as, as the base and then kind of looking what we can pull over from uh, to, but in a more uh, maybe easy to read form. so. We'd... Okay. Yeah. Should we move on to? Yes.
7: The fan. Um, that one's off, so I'm not sure. If I hear it too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, how's it? Does it sound okay? <laughs> All right. Let's hope not to get too much feedback for for anyone all right on to our next topic good evening commissioners Uh, i'm going to be presenting on the topic of the racial equity analysis this analysis is part of the comprehensive plan update recent changes in the growth management act are directing cities to look at racial equity in housing with a lot more intention with some grant funding from the department of commerce along with some commerce guidance shoreline has prepared a draft racial equity analysis looking at housing trends, demographics, and past and present housing policies and regulations to see if there are any racially disparate impacts in housing in Shoreline. Tonight staff are summarizing the data analysis and findings of this racial equity analysis. We're going to touch on some policy themes that were visited in the report, but specific draft policy language we're going to get to at a future date when we're talking about housing policies as a whole. So just some expectation setting there, Uh, we're gonna be going over the um, data analysis tonight. So uh, first we're gonna just define some terms. The report examined both historic and existing housing regulations, policies, and practices for racially disparate impacts, exclusion, and displacement. A racially disparate impact, these occur when policies and practices and other systems result in a disproportionate effect on one or more racial groups. Racial disparities exist when policies disproportionately benefit one racial group and burden another. Many policies um, that appear to be race neutral end up interacting with existing inequities that continue to perpetuate inequitable outcomes in housing. So a racially disparate impact does not need to have an intent behind it necessarily, uh, but it is about the outcome. Exclusion is the act or effect of shutting or keeping certain populations out of housing within a specific area. And this, again, may be intentional or unintentional, but it results in a non-inclusive impact. And then finally, displacement. This is the process by which a, a household is forced to move because of conditions basically beyond control of the household and there are multiple factors that contribute to the risk of a household for displacement and so multiple factors were studied as part of this report this analysis was prepared using the Washington State Department of Commerce guidance on racially disparate impacts jurisdictions are not required to find a racially disparate impact however we are required to conduct a well-reasoned analysis of local policies and regulations. And a well-reasoned analysis, this is multiple measures of cultural, economic, and physical well-being that relate to where a person lives. The report includes an analysis of demographics, including race and ethnicity. It looks at housing data, um, especially along racial and ethnic lines, and uh, spatial analysis to see where different racial groups live in the city and a multi-factor displacement risk analysis was conducted to see if there are specific areas in Shoreline that may be at increased risk of displacement. This draft report, it's quite large, and my summary tonight does not hit on all of the topics that were covered in the report. Uh, We're just pulling some highlights. So first up, demographics. When compared to King County as a whole, Shoreline is about five years older, with a median age of 42, and 6% whiter than King County. When looking back over the past 10 years, both the county and Shoreline are diversifying as they grow. And in fact, in Shoreline, 29% of our population has limited English proficiency, with most non-English languages being Asian or Pacific Islander languages. Shoreline's housing stock is primarily detached homes, with some multifamily and some townhomes. 57% of the city's housing stock was built between 1950 and 1980, so a little bit older housing stock. Since Shoreline's incorporation in 1995, most of the new residential development into the city is in the form of apartment buildings. And the distribution of types of household, age of housing, and where we're seeing the new growth it's not really surprising given the zoning of the city. 80% of the zoned land in the city is for detached residential development. And under current regulations with density and lot size minimums, we don't see a large increase in detached residential home construction because much of the city's residential land is built out. Shoreline's residential property values were mapped out based on county assessed property values and again, just residential, and we're not looking at commercial, we're not looking at parks or anything like that. Uh, What we see is a concentration of high value residential properties in neighborhoods in the western portion of the city, especially those properties along Puget Sound. And as we move uh, east, we see a greater mix of property values in the central and eastern parts of the city. Though a majority of housing units in Shoreline are owner-occupied, the rates of home ownership are not evenly distributed between racial groups in Shoreline. When looking at rates of home ownership by racial and ethnic groups, white and Asian households have significantly higher rates of home ownership than other racial groups. Housing cost burden, is when a household has to spend more than 30% of the income on housing and severe cost burden is when a household needs to spend more than 50% of the income of residents on housing. When comparing rates of cost burden among racial and ethnic groups, we see that white households tend to experience less cost burden than other racial or ethnic groups. Hispanic or Latino households tend to experience more cost burden and black households experience severe cost burden at higher rates than other racial or ethnic groups. So this report looked at historic as well as current housing policies and Shoreline does have a history of intentional racial exclusion. When the area known as Shoreline today was still unincorporated King County, a number of subdivisions included restrictive covenants which prohibited the sale or occupation of properties within the subdivision to anyone not of the white or Caucasian race. The work done by the Seattle Civil Rights and Label History Project has been mapping the history of racial exclusion in Washington. This is ongoing work. So far, we have found 26 plats in shoreline, impacting some 2,376 properties, with racial covenants either on the face of a plat in a deed restriction or homeowners association bylaws a series of maps was created to look at the distribution of different racial and ethnic groups in shoreline today using census block level data what the maps reveal is that the distribution of racial groups in the city is not uniform probably the easiest way to focus on data I know these maps have a lot going on (laughs) is the dark red colors and the light blue colors we're just going to focus on those areas in red have a high concentration of the racial or ethnic group being mapped areas in blue have a low concentration of the racial or ethnic group being mapped what we see here on the western portions of the city there is a high concentration of white households and a low concentration of non-white households When we look to the center and eastern portions of the city, we see more of a mix of white and non-white households. So here we see a comparison of the residential property values map, which we looked at earlier, and the distribution of BIPOC households in Shoreline. When studying where different racial and ethnic groups live in Shoreline, we found the main driver of differences today are property values and income. Illustrating a correlation when income and property values combine with race uh, Being an indicator of where people are likely to live Parts of the city with higher property values are less racially diverse than parts of the city with a greater mix of property values And here we see a map comparing the current zoning in Shoreline and the distribution of BIPOC households in Shoreline What we're seeing in this this series of maps is that parts of the city where zoning is more mixed between commercial, low, medium, and high residential, and maybe some mixed use zoning, uh, we see the population is more racially and ethnically diverse. Parts of the city with more limited zoning, with large portions of land uh, zoned for low density residential, are more racially homogenous, specifically whiter than the central and eastern parts of the city. Another topic analyzed in the racial equity analysis was the risk of displacement. Again, displacement refers to instances where a household is forced to move by factors outside of their control. In evaluating areas that may be at higher risk of displacement, the city prepared a multi-factor displacement risk analysis for the different neighborhoods and shoreline. And these risk factors, they're grouped basically into four categories. We have socio-demographic factors, We have proximity to amenities, which is sort of a uh, proxy for redevelopment attractors or potential gentrification, uh, factors that contribute to physical displacement like expiring affordable housing contracts, uh, rates of eviction and foreclosures, and future vulnerability factors like rates of unemployment or poverty. Each of these different topics in the report is mapped and then a composite map is created, which we're going to see here. This is the composite map and it found that the neighborhoods of Echo Lake, Hillwood and Meridian Park neighborhoods had the highest displacement risk. You'll see from the map here that the areas of more extreme displacement risk based on the factors studied really concentrate around Aurora and are not evenly distributed throughout the neighborhood because this was using census data and that doesn't map onto our neighborhood boundaries necessarily. The composite map also showed areas with lower incomes were at a higher risk of displacement and areas that are attractive to redevelopment based on zoning regulations, proximity to transit and commercial areas. They're also at higher risk of displacement. So in summary, the report found there are some racially disparate impacts in housing in shoreline. Generally, BIPOC households have lower housing outcomes, including lower rates of home ownership and higher rates of housing cost burden the distribution of racial groups in the city is not uniform we see some stark differences from the western part of the city to the central and eastern parts of the city areas with more diverse zoning are more racially and ethnically diverse than parts of the city with more restrictive zoning the main driver of differences in housing outcomes are property values income and zoning When race, income, property values and zoning all combine, we see the outcome of the western side of the city being generally whiter and wealthier than the central and eastern parts of the city. As a reminder, racially disparate impacts does not need to be intentional. Zoning and property values, which some might consider to be race neutral, intersect with other existing inequities and we see inequitable housing outcomes. And as for displacement, when considering multiple factors that contribute to displacement risk, we see the greatest concentration of risk along Aurora. So with these findings, what what is the city going to do to ensure equitable outcomes in housing? The report details a number of potential policy approaches and they're basically categorized into four main approaches, uh, first to increase affordable housing production. Next, to preserve existing affordable housing. Then to stabilize homes at risk of displacement by creating some anti-displacement policies and programs. And finally, to ensure that the benefits of development are distributed equitably throughout the city. So that was a brief summary of a very long report. Um, are there any questions about the results of the analysis or any surprises or topics you'd like to unpack further or hear more about?
3: Okay. Uh, yes,
1: this is
3: good. Um, One question I had is you know, the two things are we need to produce more more low-income housing and we need to protect existing low-income housing um, but you know so often those two things are at odds because we're going to see re- where we're seeing redevelopment we're always because we're fairly built out uh, we're not we're going to be losing something every time we redevelop um, so I, I guess is that something I know we're going to talk about housing kind of in a, in a future conversation but I mean I, I think that's going to be really one of our big challenges is that something staff's kind of started to grapple with
5: very much so
3: <laughs> yes uh, and, and then just uh, the other thing I, I would an area of focus i would like to see this is kind of something i did while i was reading through the report um i was just thinking about capital spending throughout the city um so i mean i don't this is just something i did pretty quickly i didn't go and pull the full you know capital budget for this last five years of the city or something but i did look at you know like the 2022 parks uh levy and i took a map and drew you know put all those projects on the map um and you know a lot of those projects are in areas uh, which are, are are wider uh and so i just wonder you know that's just one tranche of spending but i i think it would be helpful if the city did do some sort of analysis of where capital spending has been over the last five years and where it's on the capital facilities plans moving forward in five-year and six-year plans where those are proposed to see if there's um, geographic uh, equity which also i mean in the case would also be racial equity. Um, I know that, that's something I, I, I've tried to try to do in the past in places, just to kind of see, hey, how are we doing on these things?
1: Yeah, I, I have a comment. <clears throat> I think the study is fair. Uh, it is what it is, it shows what it shows. But it also shows that there's a lot of work to be done because it's not just good enough to know that a certain area or a corridor within a certain corridor or a, a locale here, use Echo Lake as an example, that you know that there's going to happen, displacement is going to take place there. And then we do not think, okay, if that displacement happens, where do those people go? In other words, if I'm going to promote development, I should also be thinking of how do I accommodate the people that I displaced, or are those opportunities there? And that's not kind of reflected here on where that place might be, except we say, oh, let's, let's uh, increase housing, let's increase that. But it doesn't kind of say where the movement might occur. Uh, originally we had the conversation where we're talking of LCLIP and so that we don't crawl into uh, rural areas so we don't displace people here and force more displacement or change of the rural areas and mine is how are we connecting the two we know this is happening we don't want to create displacement We don't want to totally change the rural areas, but where we put in those people. So if we could think of those, I think it it would be helpful because development is going to happen. Yeah, so that's, it is what it is. And land is fixed. So, and we are, so anyways, that's my my two senses. Thank you. Yes, Commissioner.
5: small question first when we're talking about preservation of affordable housing are the expiring covenants primarily multifamily tax exemption yes or hud mft
7: mft yeah
5: okay easier ish um, and then i think to the point of displacement i mean i having you know my day job for the last several decades trying to crack this nut it's really really hard because it is more about people programs than it is about physical development, which is not necessarily within the planning sphere, right? It's things like side sewer assistance and property tax exemptions, and a lot of things that are outside of the built environment world that help stabilize folks so that they can stay in the homeownership world, at least. Um, So just thinking about that, I mean, I'm appreciating your point is we are promoting development. There's a lot of conversations we are having about increasing density And I think that is worrisome. You know, it has to happen because we can't lower housing costs without additional housing supply. And at the same time, you know, that we will have a a movement of of people. Um, So I'm thinking about that. I'm not sure what my point is at this point, but it's tricky. Um,
7: We're definitely working at a staff level on... um, Coordinating a lot with our um, colleagues in human services, and understanding that we're similar sides of (laughs) two sides of the same coin, right? And that um, uh, what the topic of housing isn't just physical development, right? There's there's a lot that goes into what gives someone a safe and stable home, Mm -hmm. and uh, zoning being. Not too much, right? Not too (laughs) too (laughs) much. There's a lot of other uh, uh, other things that people are are focused on, and
5: so working on building those connections and making sure we're coordinating our efforts. Yeah, there are a lot of innovations that have happened, but they are often sort of one-off experiences. Mm -hmm. Like, if there's an apartment building that goes up for sale, like as long as someone is poised to take advantage of that, there but it feels like having this sort of menu of things that could come about is important, especially in a city as small as ours, because those could happen. There's a little bit more nimbleness if you're just a small city versus um, a bigger one if those are popping up because you're more likely to know about them.
7: Yeah, so it's not just opportunistic. It's if there's some, some planning and, and concept involved. Yeah.
5: Yeah.
1: Uh, Commissioner Lynn, you had up. Commissioner you had your hand up.
0: Um, uh, I, I think, uh, I had my hand up. I, um, my thought was, uh, stick around like, okay, so there are these, uh, this study and, um, uh, to your point, of uh, uh, what is the measure that, uh, the city can do to, to, uh, to help that and then, uh, come with, um, uh, all these uh, uh, complicated factors that uh, play in, and I sort of uh, lost my thought on. Um, but I I uh, want to follow up with that conversation. So so with this study of uh, the the risk, uh, there, we or we identify those areas uh, as um, uh, risk higher risk of displacement. So. is is this data became a um, a support uh, for more other type of uh, funding uh, uh, resources for low-income housing uh, support, either from the county or from the state or federal even. So, uh, yeah it's just a, a thought process and really not um, not in the realm of uh, the question listed here um, yeah.
7: well, <laughs> I, th- I think that it, it really is and it's a, a great point about policy approaches and understanding if if we have this data saying this is where our areas of higher risk are not to just sit on that information <laughs> and to to use it to have some policies and have some programs in place that could be additional funding at state, federal, wherever it comes from, uh, to really focus it on these areas that have demonstrated a, a need due to a higher displacement risk. So, Having this baseline data to help us build a program or maybe it, be eligible for grants or who knows what <laughs> that's a, a really a wonderful policy approach if we give some thought to what this data is telling us and what it's telling us to do mm-hmm.
4: Um, So I I think there's a strong theme here along the displacement concerns and um, I noticed that one of the policy recommendations is to monitor short-term rentals Mm -hmm. Um, This is something that I I've been worried about for uh, a couple years now um, because um, This is not tracked at all. So we have no idea um, is it a problem or not or to be able to track the trends, especially in these neighborhoods that you've identified as at risk for displacement. It just, it seems really urgent to be able to at least track uh, the short-term rentals. You know, not to have to go further on trying to figure out regulating them, but at least to get a sense for how many there are. Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you.
0: Any other comments? Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, I, I just, uh, yeah, I wanted to just add in, uh, There there is just a thought of when seeing the data analysis of um, the, uh, you know, predominantly uh, less diverse on the western side of uh, our city and uh and then uh cannot help thinking about previously we just discussed with this uh, mixed use uh, possibilities and um uh the possibility of uh you know still keep the business uh uh, uh for in, in the future for the say for example for those large parcels business of uh, mixed use uh, 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 parcels you know west on the west side so those are actually much should be higher candidate for um, for having a lower high percentage of uh, low income housing uh, um, possibilities that that uh, uh, can be a a balanced uh, measure in uh, How the how what we see this uh, data analysis? Just a thought. Thanks.
1: Okay. Thank you. Back to you.
6: All right. So I'm gonna close it out here just with some uh, summary on. The phase two engagement is we're mapping that out for the fall and then the the next steps. So uh, as we look ahead to the second phase of engagement, which we've really sort of started right now, um, we're ramping up for um, uh, some events that I'll hit on in a minute, but um, in doing some work behind the scenes, really, you know, as we sort of debriefed after that first phase of engagement that we held last spring. And we presented to the commission the results. Uh, clearly, there was some room for improvement in terms of reaching a broader audience. And so we're really focusing in on uh, the key audiences that we feel that were most underrepresented in that first phase based off of uh, you know who's within the city of Shoreline. And so uh, our key audiences that we're really trying to emphasize for this next phase are youth, BIPOC communities, and then renters. Uh, we feel like we really missed the mark in a lot of respects on each of these groups in different ways. But uh, so, at any rate, we'll be emphasizing and really trying to target them on the second phase of engagement. So. And what does the second phase of engagement look like as we've mapped that out? So we'll be uh, conducting another online open house, similar to the first phase, uh, that'll have some online interactive tools and, um, and likely another online survey. Uh, however, we'll be also offering an in-person open house. Um, we'll, and that's scheduled for November 15th. Uh, and then we'll be hosting a workshop with Chamber of Commerce to talk about economic development and the big jobs target that we have. Uh, that's November 16th. And then the uh, where we've interviewed a couple of community based organizations right now, we're seeking additional CBOs to be interviewing again, kind of focus on that key audience uh, that we've missed. And then um, other potential engagement activities and, and outreach opportunities as they relate to the key audiences. So uh, we're working with the Shoreline School District to try to target the youth population, as well as the Shoreline Community College. We'll hopefully be working with them closely and getting an activity or two lined up to try to reach some different target demographics or target groups that we didn't, or we feel we didn't reach as effectively as we could have on the first round. And um, so with that, um, just kind of taking the pulse of the commission, um, I know we've talked a lot about engagement, And so I think've we've, we've heard you loud and clear just in terms of like specific leads or groups or, you know, audiences and, and folks. So um, you know, those are all still noted, and we're still pursuing all those opportunities, but it never hurts to ask again, right? And so if there's any other, uh, specific organizations that you think we should be reaching out to and then also on the same token um, just in terms of our outreach approach and and the looking ahead to the next phase if there's any feedback or input to offer there
1: yeah, I I think I, I as an individual I think I was impressed with all the kinds of engagements that you have done so far <laughs> I've attended a couple, three or four, Mm -hmm. and uh, seen the effort of staffing, the information that is out there. Uh, I tend to walk, so I've seen signs all over the place. Uh, So so it's not for lack of, uh, the best way for me to say it's not for lack of you guys not trying. I'm saying that I'm really impressed by the effort that you guys have put in. It's the willingness of uh, the people we are trying to reach also to get in touch with you. Uh, I think one of the things we're asking, are there ways to find how people actually do their work or how they spend their time so that we can reach them? I think I had kind of suggested uh, that we have a tool and you guys were working with schools on that, okay. How can we reach those populations? We know that they have kids in school those that English is a second language to, they definitely have kids in in school. They have laptops. How do we set up uh, questions as a class as a class uh, theme so the child gets credit for it, but the parent does get engaged in the decision making or in contributing to the comprehensive plan? So. The both do it so the kid can understand a little bit of English because they are young but they can definitely translate for you without you having to do that so how can you use use that tool that is already there that resource that is already there the school is already provided with a school with a city laptop how do I know because my kids went to public school here and we had school uh city provided laptops Right? So they already have the tool that they can use. You can get the information immediately. They can get the credit. It just becomes a three-way win-win. That's the only thing I know you kind of said you'd try to explore, but I'm really very impressed by the effort. It's a lot of effort. Yeah. So thank you. Calvin commissioner.
4: Um, Just a question about the outreach that you're planning um, coming up um, these opportunities are they more like um, like what we've talked about as being like passive types like you're just at an event and oh you know here's a booth about the comprehensive plan or are they more um, like being invited and someone has to take time to come and participate in something or do you have kind of a mix of both types of opportunities
6: yeah we're, we've we're transitioning, uh, you know, we're out of the summer festival season and also it's good timing because we're also transitioning where we want to really be doing more focused discussions and getting more uh, substantive information and input that will inform the policy development kind of the beginning part of next year. And so. Um, so, yeah, so we're focusing more on having discussions with people. So like the interviews I mentioned, that's more of a conversation, hearing what's on top of people's minds and, uh, and hopefully drilling down deeper than you know, a tabling opportunity where we're just sort of there in the background and people can stop by and talk to us or not. And uh, so really those types of opportunities are just about getting the word out about what it is that we're doing, what is the comp plan, And how can people get plugged in and involved and hear about it? And so, um, yeah, we're kind of moving beyond that and hoping to get into more of the substance.
4: Um, And then just a quick follow up. Are there any plans for um, incentives or any type of financial um, for people who get their time for um, these things?
6: Yeah, so we um, we're working with uh, and have worked with a group of community consultants that actually, um, so uh, Elise and Steve were the inaugural presenters at the city's CityLearn um, group uh, at last month. And so they worked with a group of residents to kind of workshop that presentation and all those people were compensated for their time Um, they were holed up in a conference room you guys can speak to it better than i can because you were actually there doing it but um, kind of workshop the presentation to make sure that it resonated with people that it made sense and then that was the presentation that was ultimately given to the bigger city learn group and so yeah in that instance we were compensating folks for their time
4: I'm sorry, one more then. Um, so do you feel like the incentive really helps then to make sure you get that participation and the quality of the participation? Or is it just, a, you know, just still kind of the verdicts out on that? Or are you seeing a difference in the quality?
6: I, I mean, I think it depends on the venue. And so if it's, a you know, if we're going to be interviewing someone and taking up, Forty-five minutes to an hour of their time. I think it's reasonable to, you know, or yeah, incentivize or compensate someone for their time for that. Um, and so that can be the difference maker in terms of people wanting to participate in some instances. And I don't know, Elise or Steve, if you have anything more to offer, but I think it's really about. It just shows. Uh, some respect and value for people's time and uh and sharing their experience and their input and and offering that for the purpose of of what it is that we're doing
7: yeah i think it's it i think it's incredibly important it helps um people take time out of their day (laughs) to especially for these bigger time commitments with our workshops were two hours a piece like it was a big time commitment for people to come in here and listen to a draft presentation about the comprehensive plan and give us their um, honest feedback like that that was a big lift for people Uh, and so i don't think we would have got that had we just said put out a plate of cookies and won't you please come like maybe some people (laughs) would have i do think it is incredibly important uh, to be doing this kind of work and you know we're trying to understand how in different forms of uh, of outreach how how compensation or consideration works so we're we're learning and uh, but it does appear to be important it's not paying people for a particular answer right it's a it's a compensation for their time so whatever their feedback is we take it
1: Right, I think uh, okay. back to you.
6: Yeah, so just to wrap up, then I believe this is our last slide. So, just some bigger contexts on next steps. So, um, on October 23rd, we'll be providing the city council an update of what we've been working on since last spring. Um, we haven't been to them since before the spring open house, so we'll be going through. Those results, as well as providing an update on the feedback that the commission's been providing us in terms of um, informing kind of the work that we've been doing to date, and um, outlining everything we outlined here tonight as well. So the the vision statement alternatives, um, getting any input and feedback from them on those, as well as the equity analysis, and then the phase two of engagement. So that's on October 23rd. And then beyond that, we'll be issuing uh, the determination of significance and the scoping notice. So that's a procedural step under the State Environmental Policy Act, in which point we'll start scoping for the environmental impact statement that we'll get underway with. And then, as I mentioned, in early November, we'll be launching that online open house. And then we have the in-person open house on November 15th. Not up here is the Chamber of Commerce workshop that's on November 16th, I mentioned. Uh, We'll be wrapping all of this engagement up before the holiday season, and then we'll have lots of data and input to crunch and to consolidate, hopefully, and that'll uh, be taken and informing all of the policy development and the growth alternatives and everything feeding into the environmental review and uh, really a lot of the substantive work that you'll start seeing the first part of next week, next year, rather, Um, and we'll be bringing that forward to you for input, and um, we'll start looking at draft policies at some point, so. And I think that concludes our presentation.
1: Uh, Thank you. Uh, Toxma, do we have the in, do, do we have the individual that wanted to comment on that no.
0: now? No, we do not. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
1: Um, okay, so we'll. Next, unfinished, any unfinished business? Uh, new business? Reports of committees and commissioner announcements? Okay. Uh, do we have a
2: topic for next uh, meeting? I you know. have many. So the next two meetings are there's three items each. Uh, so your next meeting is going to start with a public hearing okay. for um, concurrency updates. <laughs> I don't have any metal. Um, it's okay. Con- uh, transportation folks will be here talking about concurrency uh, amendments in the development code and then two study items with uh, transit uh, base development code amendments and then also speaking about non-residential ground floor uses.